Good afternoon and welcome to uh, Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am uh, Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Joining me in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania today is Chase Byers. How are you today, Chase? I'm wonderful, Joe. Good to see you. Good to be on. Good, good. And Jeff Smelser in Exton, PA. Hello, Jeff. Good afternoon, Joe. It sounded like you had to think about it when you were trying to figure out who you were there. I said, I am um, I, Joe, Joe Works in Elmira, Pennsylvania, New York. <laughs> I, I, I'll not say that I was expecting somebody to interrupt me and, uh, you know, jump in with the introduction or anything. But oh, uh, wow. you're, you're, you're looking really good, Jeff, uh, for, uh, for your age. Um, well, well preserved. Uh, happy uh, belated birthday there. Um, so today we are going to talk about a Latin phrase. We're not going to talk about the Latin phrase, but uh, I will probably mispronounce it. So uh, sola fide, uh, something to that effect. Um, the idea of faith only. Um, uh, part of Calvinistic teaching, I guess, uh, there are a series of onlys that people have adopted. You can even see memes of this of uh, faith only, grace only, scripture only. I forget, there's about six or seven of them that uh, people will uh, refer to from time to time. Um, it almost seems a little bit uh, odd to me that you have several onlys. You would think if there was something only that there would only be one of them. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess the idea behind all of this, and I will admit that uh, it is not my doctrine, and um, uh, I have trouble following it sometimes. I think I understand the arguments that are being presented, but they just really seem like um, somebody has, has wanted to, to whittle down God's word into a nice package that they can present that is really missing scriptures is what it's doing. Um, so go ahead, Chase, jump in there. Yeah, no. All right. So I've studied some of this in, in previous studies. I'm completely kind of new to all the solas and uh, I've, you know, we'll, we'll talk about one, uh, one faith and all that. And I'm familiar with that. Can you guys just give me like a brief history of like where all these solas come from? Why are we talking? What is this like Latin that we're talking about? Because for me, I've always wondered too, is this connected to like Ephesians four? with one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Is any of it connected with that? Just bring me up to speed on where all this kind of originates from. I think really, well, first of all, the fact that we're talking Latin originates because up until the Middle Ages, theology was done in Latin. Um, and so you have uh, the um, Protestant Reformation come along and in reaction to the Catholic Church, uh, they're going to talk about um, we're justified by faith, not by works, but they're going to go so far as to say by faith only. And you could argue that what some of the reformers meant by it and what evangelicals today mean by it are sometimes not the same thing. But so they expressed it in Latin, sola fide, fide for faith, and sola meaning only, like solo, one. And then you have... Uh, the idea that the Catholic Church relied on tradition. And uh, so the Protestants argued, no, sola scriptura, meaning only scriptures. That's our authority. We're not going to rely on tradition. Um, 
I don't know that they were thinking and I don't know that they were inspired by Ephesians 4 and the one church, one faith, one Lord, one hope phrases. I guess it's possible. Yeah. So, yeah, the only reason I ask, I think that that brings me up to speed and it might bring others up to speed. But it sounds like what some of these things started off as were legitimate concerns out of what the Catholic Church was teaching. So what, uh, what have they turned into, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Why is it a concern now? That's what Joe's going to tell us. Yeah. Well, uh, to me, it's a, it's a Sola concern. Joe. Sola Joe. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is perhaps the scariest one of yeah, all. I don't know if anyone uh, wants Sola Joe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Better than uh, two Joe, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to me, one of the difficulties is when you, when you build a doctrine around a series of Latin phrases or something to that effect is you, you end up um, missing some of the, the deeper things that the Bible teaches. Um, uh, and so looking at this idea of sola fide, you know, by faith alone, I think what the effort is to say that we're not saved by works, which certainly the Bible teaches that that is the, the case. Uh, um, particularly if we look at the book of Romans, um, uh, we, we recognize that we can't do something to uh, earn our salvation. But it misses, I think, this deepness of the scriptures where, and maybe we'll also tie in together the, the sense of, uh, of God being supreme. Um, uh, what is the phrase that, that people will usually use to, to reference to, to God being supreme or the sovereignty of God? Exactly. And, and so to think about God being sovereign, then that means that God makes all of the decisions. Um, and so nobody can override God. Again, the difficulty with that is thinking, well, so God is sovereign. None of us should ever disagree with that. But that doesn't mean, in fact, it'd be quite contrary to think that that means that we can determine what God can and cannot require of man. Uh, if, if God is sovereign, if God is supreme, if God has all right, then doesn't he have the right to require things of us? Yeah, it's, it's... On just faith? Um, and, and so, yes, God, God is sovereign. And so the sovereign God has given us his word. And whatever it tells us that we need to do we should do that. Even after we've done that, we ought not to think that we have earned our salvation, so it's not salvation by works, but to think that all I have to do is believe in order to be saved really just misses so much of scriptures. To me, one of the big things about that is if, if, if faith only or belief only, sola fide, is true, then what about the demons in James? The, the, de the, the demons believe and tremble. Um, if, if we're saved by, by faith, the, the devil believes in God. You know, I, I think there, there's something missing there in regard to the plethora of passages that describe uh, the necessity of obedience to, to God. And, and so it's not just about believing in the Lord. Thoughts on any of that before I ramble more? Yeah, it's it's ironic, and you, you you alluded to this. 
but people who are trying to defend the sovereignty of God take away from his sovereign right to declare uh, how he's going to rule. The sovereign, think of the word reign in there, the sovereign has to do with God's rule. Well, we believe in God's rule. The Bible teaches God's rule, but we don't get to tell him uh, how to use that rule or what rules to make. He is sovereign. He gets to. Yeah. So you know, there, There's really a whole book about people trying to figure out when God will and will not do certain things, and it's the book of Job. And when Job and his four friends bat around the ideas of what God will and can and won't do, God comes in at the end of the book and tells them, none of y'all know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not saying that to say that we can't understand God and that we don't have what we need to understand God. But I get nervous anytime any system tries to cubbyhole God and strong arm him into doing or not doing certain things. Mm -hmm. And that's what sola fide or these sola ideas have unfortunately turned into. Uh, and we need never try to cubbyhole God into one position or another because he doesn't like it. Yeah. And so if, if, we, if we take the idea of sola fide and if we were to accept that, then um, what would that have to say with something in regard to repentance uh, of people turning away from their sins? Uh, is, is repentance, therefore, not something that's necessary? If a person believes in God, but they don't repent, then are, are they saved? Um, what would the scriptures teach about the necessity of turning away from our sins? Any, any thoughts on any passages come to mind for you all about any of that? I mean, just the topic of repentance is something that is so consistent throughout the New Testament story. Uh, starting in Mark 1, whenever John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And just a few verses later, Jesus comes on the scene and is preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You go to Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends out his apostles and tells them to go preach that men should repent. Um, and then in that same chapter, John the Baptist is telling Herod the king, even he should repent. Um, and then fast forward to Acts 2 in verse 38, when the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost find out that Jesus was the king and they killed him, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, each and every one of you. Repentance is a consistent command from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, even before he began with, with John the Baptist. And, and, and all of those passages are quite helpful because you see this biblical pattern. And nice that you stopped there in, in Acts 2, although we could have gone on right through the rest of the book of Acts. And, yeah, and absolutely. But thinking about Acts 2, you have these people who clearly have believed the message that Peter has delivered to them. Peter says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And upon hearing that, it says that they were cut to the heart and they cried out to Peter and the rest of the brethren, cried out to them, men and brethren, what shall we do? And what's Peter's response in verse 38? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. You need to repent in order to have your sins forgiven. They believed, they, they cried out, you know, they're, they're in panic. We've killed the son of God but they still have their sins until, unless they repent, verse 38, and are baptized. And so repentance is something that is necessary. They're going to, be, they're going to remain in their sins unless they repent of that. Just recognizing, 
I am responsible for the death of Jesus. That means that they believe. They, they have sola fide at, at verse 37, but they need to repent. Yeah. And so repentance is something that's required. And then you move to the next chapter in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, and Peter's again preaching, and he spells out the, the, the gospel message of the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, uh, his death and his resurrection. What do we do? Verse 19, repent ye therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is connect connected with our sins being blotted out. Jesus in, in Luke 13 chapters to an audience, he was speaking to, nay, but I accept you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so this is not just a matter of they're saved at the point of believing, sola fide, and then, yes, though they do need to repent, and they will. No, repentance is tied to the forgiveness of their sins. But, but Joe, here's how, here's how the modern evangelical world, the people trained in seminaries at least, get around this. Um, if you get right down to it, they believe that salvation is unconditional. You don't have a choice in the matter. Um, and yes, faith is a requirement, but God puts that faith in you. He zaps you with the faith. And so any repentance that comes about, that's, that's God's doing too. That's not even your choice. Um, you are supposed to try to live a godly life, but everything's determined by God which when you get right down to it, this whole doctrine goes back to the idea that we don't have a choice, that God arbitrarily decides some are going to be lost and some are going to be saved. Folks, that's really what this, that's the only way logically this sola fide, this faith only doctrine that is taught in so many churches today makes sense. And then it's contrary to the Bible. Absolutely. And, and uh, I, I tell you, there's, there's a passage that makes it really clear to me that that concept that God is the one because of his sovereignty, he decides who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. He's going to impute faith into somebody separate and apart from their own free will. Um, it, First Timothy 2 and verse 4 talks about how God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It, you, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You, you have this sort of bipolar God uh, in, in this Calvinistic doctrine. He wants everybody to be saved, but he's only going to save some. Mm -hmm. just, that is so inconsistent with scriptures and, and incompatible with, with scripture. But uh, do you have something there, Chase? So maybe let me touch on another part, because sometimes people do sort of separate this idea. Of, well, if you believe, you know, pe people who, who, who truly believe, they will do those things. Um, again, sort of the idea that God's going to force them to, to do that. What about the necessity of confessing Jesus? Uh, is that something uh, that's required? Um, we certainly see people confessing uh, the Lord in many passages, uh, I don't think anybody denies that idea, but is that something that's tied to um, salvation? Um, and, and is it possible to, to actually believe in Jesus and not confess? Is that, would that be something that would be possible to do for people who truly believe in Jesus? Well, here's two passages. Uh, one is, I guess let's take this one first, John the 12th chapter, and uh, verse 41, uh, these things said Isaiah because he saw his glory and he spoke, spoke of him. Nevertheless, verse 42 now, 
nevertheless, even the rulers of the rulers, uh, among the Jews, that is, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, mm -hmm. lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Yeah. And then there's this added comment, or here's why, they love the glory that is of men more than the glory that is of God. Well, you can't be saved if you love the glory of men more than the yeah. glory of God. On the flip side, here is Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus says in verse 32 and 33, everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven, but whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't think that passage is talking about some formal confession made at the time of baptism, uh, at the time of salvation, but I do believe what it's saying is we have to be willing to be counted as uh, to, as uh, Lord's people. We have to be stand up and say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. We have to act that way. We have to live that way. And we have to speak that way. And we have to be courageous enough to say that, that that's our conviction and that's uh, our stand, even when it's going to cost us. Yeah. I, I Amen to everything Jeff just said. I really like your use of John 12 there. Um, and that's really a cool thing I've been noticing through my recent readings of John, how consistent of a theme it is where there are a lot of people who believe in the gospel of John, but they lack that confession. One of the easiest ones to see like that is the story of Nicodemus. Chapter three, he comes to Jesus by night. Not a whole lot is told about what happens after that interaction until chapter seven, when he's given an opportunity, when they say, well, none of the Pharisees have confessed him or believed in him. And Nicodemus speaks up, but it's not to say that I believe and I confess Jesus. It's not until the end of the Gospel of John when he goes with Joseph to request the body of Jesus that you see him openly not only believe, but confessing Jesus as his Lord. Um, so that's just a cool theme throughout John, but it's trying to emphasize the need to not only believe, but be willing to confess, or I like the word profess uh, Jesus openly. Um, and that's the true and honorable profession, right? That Paul talks about in first Timothy. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. No, no, no. Finish, finish point. I was going to say, I did want to point out, we have comments from Facebook and zoom that are highlighting Romans 10. Um, if we wanted to go there at some point, right, maybe yeah, get there my now. Bible open to there as well. Yep. Thanks. Well, I was just going to say this, you know, if we, if we step back a moment and say, well, what is faith? And if we think of faith as putting my trust in Jesus, what does that mean? I'm putting my trust in his death on the cross. I'm not saved by my own works. I'm putting my trust in his death on the cross. I'm also putting my trust in his instructions. I'm going to live the way he said to live. I'm also putting my trust in his promise that he has the power to raise me from the dead. And so in putting my trust in his power to raise me from the dead, I'm not going to be afraid to say I'm a Christian, whatever threat I may face in this life about it. So really speaking biblically, faith, saving faith, trust in Jesus, somebody who has that does confess. And I, I would argue that, that the demons, for example, who believed, um, well, come to think of it, some of those demons were willing to acknowledge who Jesus was yeah. more so than, say, Nicodemus was at first. Yeah, I know who you are, Jesus uh, Christ, the son of the most yeah. high God. That's a very specific way to address him. <laughs> but, but this is one of the problems with this faith-only doctrine, that in order to exclude some other things that the advocates of the faith-only doctrine want to exclude, 
in order to say, no, you don't have to be baptized. No, you, you don't have to live a morally chaste life. Yes, you can commit fornication and all this, and you're still saved anyway. In order to uh, exclude everything else, they have to define faith in such a way that it's, it, it, it loses its force. It becomes something that really is not much more than mental assent to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And mental assent to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is not the saving faith we read about in the Bible. Great observation. Very, very good. And, and so we see this sort of different levels of people believing either. And, and that John 12 is, is a perfect example of that. The, the text is very clear. They did believe in Jesus. I mean, how could they deny uh, what their own eyes was, uh, was, was showing them? Um, uh, the, the miracles that, that had been done, the, the raising of Lazarus the, is what had gone on right shortly previous. Uh, they believed, but they were unable or unwilling, I should say. They were unwilling to uh, take a stand for, for the Lord. And so that kind of, uh, that level of belief where I'm still not willing to submit is, is insufficient. Um, uh, and confession is one of the things that the, that the sovereign God has said that this is required. And, and, if, and if you're not willing to have this level of, of faith, of, of belief, to confess me, the passage you mentioned there in Matthew 10, also in, in Romans 10, uh, Chase mentioned a while ago, uh, verse 10, with a heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. There is, there's no good reason to exclude all of these other passages uh, that, that deal with salvation. You know, somebody, sometimes they want to say, but what about John 3.16? I mean, doesn't John 3.16 say we need to believe? I accept John 3.16. We accept John 3.16. Uh, you're not going to get an argument out of us. Uh, uh, we're not going to try to dismiss John 3.16. But John 3.16 is not the only passage in John 3, nor in the Gospel of John, nor in the Bible. And so we need to believe, absolutely. But we need to do the other things that the other scriptures say. One, one passage does not trump another. And so we ought, we, ought to, we ought to look at the topic of believing, but also the topic of salvation. At John 3.16, one of the most frequently overlooked observations is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him would not perish but have eternal life, is a statement made by Jesus in a conversation, a conversation with the Nicodemus we were talking about earlier. In that same conversation, just some nine verses earlier, Jesus says, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot see God. So for me to skip past that, ignore that, and then come to John 3, 16 and say, all you have to do is believe you don't have to be born of water and spirit. You don't have to be baptized. That makes a mockery of the sovereignty of Jesus and any claim that person has to putting faith in Jesus. Absolutely. And, and interesting to think about John 3, 16. You mentioned the uh, being born of the water and of the spirit earlier. And then what takes place at the end of John, the third chapter as well, you have John the Baptist out baptizing, uh, and uh, in, uh, in that baptizing, 
much of what we learn uh, about the uh, uh, people who, who come to believe in Jesus are responding through this, this act of, of baptism. And so does baptism play a part in, in believing? Uh, there's an element, if, if a person is going to believe, they're going to repent. They're going to change their ways. They're going to confess the Lord, not just one time, in the, certainly not in some sort of formula right at the point of baptism, uh, but they're going to, to confess the Lord with their mouth. And then what about baptism? Is the act of baptism uh, connected with the sovereign God's decision on salvation? You know, people think that it does. People think that if I say I have to be baptized, then I am impinging upon the sovereignty of God who said, you know, it's not on you. But, but biblically, what is baptism? But the, the thing that God has said joins us to the death of Jesus Christ, which is what saves us. Yeah. It's the death of Jesus Christ, putting our trust in that death that is salvation by faith as the Bible speaks of it. Right. Baptism is a part of that. Baptism is becoming a part of Jesus' death, being connected with his death so that his death does take away my sins. It, so in other words, it's not a physical act or work that's saving us. It's not something we're doing, but it, it's what the Lord has done. And not and only that, that, it's not something besides the death of Christ. That's what some people think. They think, well, here's the death of Christ, and you want to add baptism to it. No, it's not something else. It is part of that right. being saved by the death of Christ. You know, that, that ties in well. Uh, Emma commented on our Facebook feed, baptism to me is not a work or a job I did. It was my faith in accepting of the offering of God to forgive. It is no more my work than saying a prayer to ask God for forgiveness. If we see baptism as something I do, we don't really see how uh, see baptism how God does, um, which I think is a good thought. I mean, I, my mind also with her comment goes to Colossians 2. This is something that was pointed out to me. Um, Colossians 2, uh, in verse, um, uh, in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You know, God is the one doing the work in the baptism. There, there's not anything you're doing, you're submitting, but it's the work that God does that saves you. Um, and I think that's a common misconception with baptism. If we want to talk about mere physical labor or work we're going to have to do, I see far more physical labor and work out of repentance uh, than I would see out of baptism. Um, not saying, again, that the, it would be your works that save you, but there are things that you have to proactively do in repentance um, that, that would require more of you there physically than even baptism would. Yeah, I appreciate Emma's comment. Can you imagine for these people who think of baptism as a work something that somehow merits us salvation we're trying to be justified by our great deeds can you imagine look watching people being baptized and looking oh boy he really did it well he stayed under for a whole 10 seconds he's sure to be saved and, and the next one comes in and oh he only stayed under two seconds i don't think he did it good enough and that, that what in the world are we thinking when we say hey guy i lose my voice and <coughs> choked up there so, yeah, I think it's a great observation. Uh, it is clearly not something that man is doing to be saved, or at least he ought not to be doing uh, to be saved by earning his, uh, his salvation by, by this act of, of getting soaked in water. 
Um, but it is uh, an act that God requires. And so we ought to submit to that. We may have trouble understanding why is that so important? Why, why is God tying that together? But if that's our argument, then we're denying the sovereignty of God. Uh, we, we're ignoring that God has the right to say something, even if we don't agree with it, or, or even if we don't understand it, or, or maybe even if it, it seems like, yeah, but God said, believe in this other passage. Okay, but the sovereign God can say one thing in one passage and one thing in another passage. They don't contradict one another any more than saying that we're saved by grace and we're saved by the blood of Christ. Well, which is it? Are we saved by grace or are we saved by the blood of Christ? It, yes. Is it? Sola gratuita, uh, probably going to mispronounce that one, right? Um, uh, by grace alone, or, or is it uh, sola Christius uh, in Christ alone? Well, no, it, it's not. Um, uh, it, we are saved according to the scriptures, and we ought to accept all of the scriptures. Sola scriptura, I guess. Uh, that, that's the one that I can get behind. Um, uh, we, we ought to accept all of the scriptures and all only the scriptures. Um, this idea of, of baptism not being tied to salvation, one of the, uh, the most uh, prolific, is that the right word? Um, the, the, the writer uh, who, who wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, um, uh, I guess maybe by chapters it's going to be, or, or by words, it's pretty close between Paul and Luke maybe, but uh, certainly Paul wrote most of the New Testament letters. What was his own account? What, what was his own, uh, how, how, at what point was he saved? What point did, did the Apostle Paul find the forgiveness of sins? Well, Acts 20, are you asking? Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Acts twenty two sixteen says it was, uh, when Ananias came to him after Saul had seen the Lord, after he had obeyed the command to go into Damascus where he'd be told what to do, after he had been fasting and praying for three days, uh, then Ananias comes to him and says, Arise, now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So he, you're suggesting that he still had his sins at the point that Ananias came to him and, and gave him those instructions. I'm suggesting that Luke suggested that in the book of Acts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the written record. So if we're going to accept Sola Scriptura, then we have to understand Paul still had his sins after he had met the Lord, after he had, had heard the Lord, after he had recognized him as Lord, after he had obeyed the Lord and in going into Damascus, he's sitting there fasting, and uh, uh, unwilling to, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's going to do what God wants him to do. God presents this message through his servant Ananias, uh, trembling, I suspect, when he came. Um, but he still needed to have his sins, and it's powerful the way that he says this, right? He doesn't just say to have your sins forgiven or blotted out. Some other passages talk about that. What phrase does he use in Acts 22 and in verse 16? Wash away your sins, or in the Southern translations, wash away your sins. Um, it is, it is, it, that was just for Patrick's sake. I'll go ahead and mention that one. Um, <laughs> one of our viewers. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if he says it that way or not, but uh, why would he say, why would he use the phrase, wash away your sins, in, particularly in that text in Acts 22? Because he wasn't from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, is there another reason? In the <laughs> because, because the cleansing of our sins, throughout the Bible, you have uh, the idea of, of being saved associated with being cleansed, being washed, and you have water as a, a device. And so God has chosen baptism. It looks like there's a couple of ideas here. One, it replicates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and, it's, and that's to call attention to the fact that in baptism, we are joining ourselves to Christ, putting to death the old man, repentance, and starting this new life. But secondly, in being baptized, there is this plunging in water and coming up uh, of being cleansed. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, um, but it is we are, we are being washed from the defilement of our sins. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so it's such a powerful phrase, and, and, and there's this, this intended connection why are you awaiting uh, rise and be baptized? Wash away your sins, washing away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And, and so the baptism is connected with washing. Um, uh, we ought to see that sense of a cleansing that taking place here with Paul. Um, Paul still had his sins. They needed, he needed to be cleansed of his sins. Now, and, just... and baptism is what's going to do that. Just a quick, quick correction. Uh, I'm from Alabama. To my knowledge, Warsh is not a particularly popular pronunciation in Alabama. We're having a little fun there because we have a viewer <laughs> that you had mentioned who lives in Alabama. Go ahead. Uh, and, and I just said Southern, so I was like sort of blasting out. Um, but yes, that, that's exactly right. It, it, it is a common phrase from where I'm from, uh, in Southern Indiana at least. Um, so. Uh, but you have then the idea of baptism and washing away sins. They, you can't separate those in that text without doing great damage to sola scriptura. Um, and that also agrees, as we ought to expect, with what the Apostle Peter also stated in, uh, in 1 Peter 3, where he says, in verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. And then you, go, then you have this parenthetical statement, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? So some have suggested that the baptism in 1 Peter 3 is not actually water baptism. And their, their point would be that it's not water baptism because he says it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. But to me, that would be exactly the opposite. Why would he need to say it's not getting your outside clean if it wasn't water baptism? And in fact, yeah, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have to make that clarification at all is what you're saying. There would be zero. He would have to make yeah, zero that, clarification whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. right. But because he's already made it clear that it is water baptism, in verse 20, he ties it with Noah and his family being saved, not from the water, but through the water. Was Noah saved through the water? Verse yes. 3, 
20 makes it clear that, that he was in like manner. <laughs> uh, there, we have this antitype in, in verse 21. We, there's, a, there's also this antitype which now saves us. Baptism. You just have water, and then he says, uh, oh, and baptism saves us. Now, it's not the cleansing of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. <clears throat> so because the sins aren't on the outside of our bodies, but it's obeying God's instructions, having that good conscience toward God. I, I, I just think when we talk about sola fide, we ought to recognize that that leaves out a lot of very critical things. That, that, the, that the sovereign God demands, requires, necessitates of us. I want to find Oops. something real quickly here. It just occurred to me. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm looking for, and I'll see if I can find it and, um, and come back to me in a minute. But you, you all have heard that in Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, where Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've heard the various attempts to say that that's not saying baptism is essential for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, it's something about with the Greek word ace there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to I wanna see if I can, there was a, I'll come back to me in a minute about that. Okay. Yeah. So one of the, to, 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 we, we've we've touched on this idea of sola fide, but what about repentance? Sola fide, but what about confession? Sola fide, but what about baptism? And at that point, and it seems like baptism is whenever I teach on baptism, some people are like, I, I can talk about repentance all day long. No, no disagreement. Confession, no disagreement. You mentioned baptism, like, no, 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 it's sola fide. And some of the arguments that they'll give, they'll say, Well, what about the thief on the cross? He was saved without baptism, and there's absolutely no proof of that. Uh, we do not know. Remember, John the Baptist had been baptizing a lot of people. So you, do, you cannot say that the thief was not baptized in John's baptism. Now, I don't think that it's necessary in that situation, but it is, it is going beyond sola scriptura to say that the thief had not been baptized. There is no passage that teaches that. You know, uh, Joe, I, I think the other thing I get whenever we get to baptism, and once things start clicking with baptism, there's sometimes some hypotheticals people start throwing out. Uh, well, mm -hmm. what if they die on the way, or what if you're stranded somewhere where there is no body of water, and all those hypotheticals? What, what would you do, or what do you typically do with those situations that people believe that a hypothetical situation would ne negate what the scriptures say? What if, what if they die an hour earlier when I'm on the way to the Bible study to teach them about Jesus and uh, they haven't had a chance to hear and believe yet? Oh. Uh, I, uh, hypothetical situations don't prove anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, that's in God's hands. You know, that's where we ought to leave it. But we have the time and, and we ought to be baptized for the remission of sins for to, to have our sins washed away um we, we ought to obey those scriptures uh, there, there's there's no reason not to other than a rebellion against god in order to hold to traditions and i would also just like to point out in mark the 12th chapter whenever the uh, the sadducees come to jesus asking him about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection they come up with a ridiculous hypothetical situation to try and negate the teaching of the resurrection 
but that no less made them right or wrong. And so when we throw hypotheticals out there, it doesn't make our argument stronger or weaker. It doesn't change anything. I just want to point that out. Yeah, good good point. Pat, Patrick mentions, you know, what if they believe in Jesus, but they haven't come to understand about the resurrection yet? Uh, you know, yeah, we could we could throw in that hypothetical situation at any point of of their learning or or coming to the Lord. What we need to do is just teach what the scriptures mm-hmm. teach and uh, and rely on that. Did you find what you're looking for, Jeff? Yeah, 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 yeah. So let me set this up. There are so many passages that very clearly on the face of it teach the necessity of baptism. But what happens is people who have been um, immersed in this doctrine of faith only, (laughs) how'd you like that? (laughs) They they have been told- It makes it worse when you point it out. I just want you to realize. (laughs) But I was so proud of it. All right, all right, continue, continue. (laughs) People who have just heard this doctrine of faith only over and over and over from their pastors um, one of the things they do is they, is they assume that there is some explanation in the Greek text for all these passages that look like they teach that baptism is necessary. There's probably something in the Greek that makes that not true. Uh, and they're told that by their pastors. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where it says, uh, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptists, uh, scholars, and um, other evangelical pastors have argued over the years various things. They have said, well, according to the Greek, that could be translated, repent and be baptized because of the remission of sins. In other words, you've already been saved, now repent and be baptized. Others have said, well, if you look at the Greek structure, it's actually just saying repent for the forgiveness of sins, and baptism is just kind of an auxiliary thing to do. And there are other things that have been said. And, and so people uh, hear that and they go, oh, okay, I guess there's some explanation in the Greek. There is a Facebook group called Nerdy Language Majors. And most of the members are either teachers or students of biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew especially. Most are evangelicals. So most of these people are people who are in churches where they teach sola fide, faith only, and say you don't have to be baptized. But these are people who are students or teachers of biblical languages, including Greek. And one of them recently posted a poll. Now, the point of this is, is, is not to prove one thing or the other about Acts 2.38. I'll tell you what the point is in just a minute. But he posted a poll, and um, he said... Um, he gave all oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different interpretations of Acts 2.38. And the first is that the word for or unto, forgiveness of sins, the Greek word is ace, uh, that it means that it expresses purpose. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. That was choice number one. Then he gave several other choices, including that it really means because of, um, that it just means with reference to something, uh, and so on. So there were one, two, three, four, five, six choices. And then he, he just sent it out to, to this nerdy language uh, majors group and let people vote. I'm not saying truth is determined by voting, um, but the votes went like this, that it expresses cause, baptism is caused by or made possible by forgiveness of sins, zero votes. Uh, that it expresses the realm of their baptism, baptism into the forgiveness, one vote that it expresses reference to something, uh, 
two votes. Uh, that it expresses result, baptism results, 11 volts, votes. That in Mark 1, 4, it's a sign of the repentance, 14 votes. That ace expresses purpose, that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, 40 votes. Now, my point isn't to say, well, this proves the right answer. My point is to say, if you are a person who doesn't know the biblical languages, but you're just trusting what your pastor tells you, that you can just dismiss all of these passages that seem to say baptism is for the remission of sins, that baptism is the point of salvation, you can just dismiss all of that because there's something in the Greek that explains it away. You get a bunch of Greek students and teachers together who know something about the Greek language, and they are recognizing the foolishness of all of that. They are recognizing, no, if you just look at the language, it's be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's that's besides the countless other passages we have on baptism and make it clear on what it is. I do appreciate your confession, Jeff, of being a nerdy language expert. Um, that I'll, 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 I will, I will, uh, I will take, I can't think of the word I want. I will, I will cop to the nerdy part, maybe not the expert part. <laughs> well, you know, the, the Bible was written for common man, and, and its translation in English is accurate. Um, we, we ought to accept all of these passages, not just the ones that talk about belief, not just the ones that talk about repentance or confession or grace or the blood of Christ. We ought to accept all of them. And, and so sola fide is not a biblical teaching. It is a popular religious teaching, but it, it throws out so many passages. We don't have time to, to go into the other points about this. I'd be happy to maybe uh, touch on it more later on, but we're out of time for this afternoon. Thank you all for, for joining us. Really appreciate those, especially that participated by uh, adding, adding comments in. That's quite helpful for, for us. Thank you all very much. Have a good afternoon.